Well, good morning. Amen. It really is a delight to have you. Welcome here. Welcome online. If you're new to Northland, a special welcome to you. If you're a long-termer, we're really glad that you're here as well. And Arlene and I always love being here and connecting with you and listening along with you. So let's go ahead and acknowledge. I, I, the one talking this morning might be me, but the one teaching ultimately is not me. I want to listen to him along with you. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are in whatever place we find ourselves in, not just physically, whether it's this auditorium or a living room on the other side of the world, but the place where we are in our journeys and our stories. You don't ask that we leave those things outside and worship you and listen to you in a vacuum, but we listen to you in the midst of whatever's right before us. I confess in my friend's presence, I, I don't have anything to say to them that would be of any value unless what I say is rooted in your word and enabled by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, do what you do. Teach us. Give us life. Glorify Jesus. And we'll listen together. We want to be stewards of what you say. So with that commitment, we ask you, to speak and to lead us. In your name I pray, amen, amen. Okay, so I've got a little quiz for you. Tell me what that says right there. What, what does that say? What's the significance of that? Anybody know? This past week I was on a plane, I heard a husband say, his wife was next to him, her husband said, what the heck is Super Bowl Lee? And she said, honey, it's a Roman numeral. He said, oh, that's right, that's right. So I, I don't know if you're aware, there's a little football game happening later today, and it's Super Bowl Lee. Uh, it's actually Super Bowl 51. People want to know, where, why do we call Super Bowls by, their, by Roman numerals? Well, the Super Bowl started back in the mid-60s, and it, it first, they first started numbering them. Uh, the first three or four, they were saying, let's just number them, because the championship was happening in January, but they didn't want to call it by that particular year, because that was not the year that most of the games had been played. It was referring to the season of the previous year, so they began numbering them. And for the fifth one, Lamar Hunt, who was one of the, the godfathers of the NFL, NFC, AFC, he was the owner of the Chiefs. He's the one that proposed, let's use Roman numerals. It gives prestige. There gives Because at that time, the Super Bowl wasn't nearly as popular as it was today. So the, the first Super Bowl to use a Roman numeral was Super Bowl V, which was easy enough. It worked great for three years. Then came along Super Bowl X. And everybody thought, what is Super Bowl X? Because nobody knows their Roman numerals. You know, these days we all know LOL and all these other things, but we don't know Roman numerals. And people began hiccuping and going with it. And, I, and people got okay with it until we started dealing with this whole L business, you know, XLIV. No, and people look at that and say, I have no idea which Super Bowl that is. I just know it's when the Colts and the Saints played. And uh, so last year, you know what was so special about the Super Bowl? So significant. Other than the fact that the Denver Broncos won. Let's just have a moment, a moment of silence. Uh, 
Oh, so the other thing that was significant about last year is it was the first Super Bowl since Super Bowl four that did not go by Roman numeral. They just said 50 because they didn't know, they didn't want to say Super Bowl L, looked like Super Bowl loser, things like that. So I know your lives are more fulfilled now that you know the history of Roman numerals. So you got to know your math to engage with the Super Bowl, not just Roman numerals, but all the statistics. So I wanted to tell you that just to let you know about tonight, but also to get you into a math mode. Are you in a math mode? We all love math, don't we? Yeah. All right, here's an equation. I want you to do it in your head. Simple math. Ready? I'm going to give you numbers to add, and you've got to add them. No, no calculators, no phones. Just add them in your head. You ready to go? Need some enthusiasm here. Ready to go? All right. Here we go. Take 1,000 and add 40 to it. Got it? Got it? Okay. Add another 1,000. Add another 30. Add another thousand. Add another twenty. Add another thousand. Add another ten. What have you got? Five thousand. What everybody says. The answer is actually forty-one hundred. So the the let's hear for the CPAs in the room. They got it. Uh, yeah. So everybody thinks it's, it's, it's like an optical illusion mathematically. Some of you are saying, no, it's not. It's not 4,100. Take a photo with your phone and do the math later. It's 4,100. We're not always as good at math, whether it's Super Bowl or just regular math. We're not as good as we think we are. But even more importantly, what we're going to talk about today is that we're not as good at kingdom math as we need to be. I'll come back to that kingdom math thing, but first, let's get a press box view of where we are. We're in the midst of the series called Seeing the Kingdom. This is part three. Today, we're looking at seeing that we are sent partially trained. And so often, we get paralyzed because we don't think, okay, I haven't completed my training. I, I don't have adequate resources. And the, the reason it paralyzes us is we don't know kingdom math. Jesus, as he was training his disciples, three years he spent with them. One of the things he was teaching them, and they had to learn, is kingdom math. You say, what's kingdom math? Well, it occurs several times in the New Testament. One of the most profound ones was in the feeding, what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. And my apologies to you ladies, because the Jewish historians in that day would only give the number for the men in attendance, but it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're talking 12, 13,000 people gathered on a Galilean hillside. Jesus was teaching them. He was teaching the people, but he was especially teaching the disciples and he was modeling for them and relating with them and doing life with them. Mid-afternoon, one of the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, everybody's getting hungry. The afternoon's getting late. Uh, we need to let everybody go to the villages and the town so that they can buy food. Jesus said, not so fast. We're not done with learning here. So in John chapter 6, verse 5, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test Philip. 
For Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, there are different miracles that are recorded in one gospel and not the other. All four gospels record this because it was so significant for them. This whole notion of kingdom math. And you see a theme in each of the gospel where Jesus, he said, I'm going to test them. He was going to teach them. Matthew 14, 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, we have, only, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. They'd kind of taken a survey and a little boy had his mother's lunch, ba- the, the lunch basket his mother had made. It had five loaves of bread and two fish. And they said, that's all we got. Luke 9, verse 13, Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread, two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. Mark six thirty-seven. But he answered, you give them something to eat. You're picking up a theme here? He says, you, you, you need to do this. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. What Jesus was doing is exposing something to them, their natural tendency of, okay, what is it going to take for us to feed all of these people? We all have kingdom callings in our lives if we're followers of Jesus. His kingdom is not a place. It's the realm of his rule. And his rule was complete before the fall. The breach happened. The rebellion happened. People saying we can be normal, fulfilled people without your rulership and leadership in our lives. We call that the fall. Sin is rebellion against that life-giving rule. Jesus has come to inaugurate the new kingdom, really restoring that which once, once was. And so the power and the beauty of becoming a follower of Christ is entering back into his life-giving rule. Not restrictive, suffocating religiosity, but life-giving rule. And underneath that rule is we're seeking first his kingdom and his rule. We're seeking to lovingly and in a life-giving way spread that rule to our cultures, to our relationships, to our neighborhoods. So he gives us callings. You've got one this week. You may or may not know what it is yet. I don't know. That's going to be between you and him. I've got a few. It could be a kingdom calling regarding a neighbor or a, co- or a co-worker, a kingdom calling of how I'm supposed to respond to news from a doctor about my own health, or it might be a financial thing that you're dealing with or something uh, vocationally. But we have these kingdom callings where, you know, with, with the disciples, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. God's saying, you need to take this step under my leadership. But the flaw, the mistake that I make a lot is I, I, I don't do kingdom math. I, I do natural math and here's how it works. So the disciples are taking a uh, kind of a, an inventory. What's it going to take to feed everyone? What's it going to take for there to be enough food? And this is the equation they were doing. So, okay, we've got, um, we've got five loaves and we need to add that to two fish and we need six months wages half a year's wages he said so six months wages and if we have five loaves plus two fish plus six months wages that's going to be enough Jesus says no that's not kingdom math We tend to rely on all of us. And he says, no, you've got to learn to do math my way. What's kingdom math look like in this situation? 
What's it look like in your situation in terms of whatever God's calling you to do maybe this week? Kingdom math. Kingdom math in this situation looks like five loaves plus two fish. Instead of plus six months wages, how about plus one Jesus? And that's enough. And that's kingdom math. And he wanted to make sure the disciples got it and they all note. He divided them up. He said, divide everybody up to 50 groups of 50. They all distributed. The loaves and fishes kept being multiplied because of kingdom math. Five loaves plus two fish. Ooh, not enough. Six months wages, that probably wouldn't have been enough. But you think, humanly speaking, you think, but five loaves plus two fish plus one Jesus, that's going to be enough. In fact, there's a little asterisk here. More than enough. Because when they were done, each disciple, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. 12 doggy bags. One for each of the disciples to hold and say, this is kingdom math. And it lodged away with them. Now, after the miracle, Jesus went up to the mountainside to pray for some alone time. The disciples got in a boat, went across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, middle of the night. The Sea of Galilee is small, but violent storms can erupt. It did that night. In the midst of the storm, the disciples, terrified, see Jesus walking to them on the water. And remember, this is the scenario where Jesus and Peter have that thing. And Peter jumps out of the boat and begins to walk to Jesus and is learning kingdom math. No swimming lessons. I'm not Michael Phelps. Then rises up going back and forth. And he learns that. The next day, they're having a debrief. Again, Jesus, remember, he's, he's training them. In John chapter 6, verse 28, then they ask him, okay, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires. What, what, do I need, what do we need to do this week to do the works that you're calling me to do? And my family and my job and our neighborhood, starting this new ministry, starting whatever it is. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Don't do anything till you've got all the resources and training. Ah, uh, No. The work of God is this, to do what? To what? I want you to all read it out loud. To do what? To believe. To believe. Not just this ethereal thing. Believe in the one that he has sent. And our inability to do kingdom math paralyzes us. Because we think... But what we do is we do natural math. This is what I do way too often. In the presence of some type of a kingdom calling, I say, okay, if I've got uh, my training, training, and I'll put a C there, means it's completed, added to resources, I'll put an A there, resources that are adequate. If I had training that's completed and resources that are adequate, that's enough. Jesus says, no, that's not enough. Anything, are are these things important? 
training, of course they are. This is not, we're not talking about not doing planning or anything like that, but it's what am I ultimately putting my confidence in? Are, is, is training and are the training and resources important? Of course they are. Are they most important? No. What's most important? Kingdom math. But if I don't do kingdom math, I get paralyzed. Because I wait. I'm saying I'm not going to do a thing until I get enough training and enough resources. When's that going to happen? If it's truly a kingdom calling, why? Why this kingdom math? Because Jesus, the beauty, he says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you. The, the, at the, at the, the bottom line is us walking in intimacy with him, walking in trust with him, and stepping out. And if we've got all the resources and training... We're confident in and of ourselves, and as a result, we undermine the supernatural nature of the kingdom and our calling in the midst of it. Resources important, sure, but not most important. Training important, sure, but not most important. What's most important? Christ's enoughness. You're saying enoughness is not a word. Well, it is now. Christ's enoughness. What Jesus was doing is training them, and that continues through their testimony to to invite us into the same discipleship in which he's saying, I want you to learn to walk in my enoughness. And it's throughout the New Testament. Second Peter. You guys know, I've already told you, one of my dominant spiritual gifts is clarifying the obvious. And so here we go. Who wrote Second Peter? Here we go. Peter. Don't put it as some archaic, irrelevant uh, uh, religious document. This is a letter from Peter. Peter who got his feet wet. Peter who's not a water person. Now, the, the Jews, the first century, they weren't water people. They were desert people. They had generations. They had been in the desert. With that kind of wet feet scenario in the midst of that storm in mind, hear what Peter says. He's not saying this in some religious vacuum. He's saying, guys, listen, God's divine power has given us everything we need. You know what he means by everything we need? I think he means everything we need. You look in the Greek, it means everything we need. Maybe not everything we want. Usually what we want is to cushion so that we don't have to trust and step out in faith. At least that's the way it is for me. He says, he's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Uh, Paul of Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. And my God, he will meet all your needs. What do you think he means by all your needs? I think think that's what the Greek is meaning. All your needs. According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 19 in the message. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. My God, he sets the stage. And this is the way uh, to, to do kingdom math. You're always related to, we're not putting the emphasis on our, our, our belief. We're putting the emphasis on the object of our faith. He says, may God who puts all things together, make all, makes all things whole, who make a lasting mark through the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of blood that sealed the eternal covenant, who led Jesus, our great shepherd, up and alive from the dead, and who now puts you together. You talk about setting the stage. Now, he says, may he provide you with everything you need to please him. What do you think he means by that? <laughs> he means everything 
that we need to please Him. All right, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, if not, we're about to show you a passage. And again, that gift of clarifying the obvious, here we go. 1 Corinthians 2 follows 1 Corinthians 1. I know that's deep. But in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul outlines the calling that we have as his people. And verse 1, and verse 2, and verse 9, and verse 24, he talks about us being called. And now what, what Paul's about to do is help you and me know how to do kingdom math on a daily basis. What does it mean to do kingdom math? It means to embrace the enoughness of Jesus. What does that look like? Paul describes it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So for Paul, some say he probably wasn't a good speaker, and that was an area of real vulnerability for him. And he says, you know what? When I came to you, I wasn't relying on natural math. Instead, let me tell you what I was relying on. Verse 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. So here you go. Let's go back through those verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And in, in each of those verses, let's find four realities that Paul is summoning me to embrace in the presence of whatever kingdom calling I've got this week. I might not know what the kingdom calling is yet. Maybe I've been so reluctant. And typically, if I do natural math long enough, I get unable to hear kingdom callings because my face shrinks so much. And now all of a sudden, he's breathing into into me and into you. Vision. To say, let's listen. So with that kingdom calling that he's going to reveal... He wants me to not do natural math, but kingdom math, meaning I'm going to step into that opportunity with Christ's enoughness. What does stepping into that kingdom calling with the enoughness of Jesus look like? It looks like this. It looks like me embracing four realities. Here's the first reality. Stepping into his enoughness, stepping into this calling with his enoughness will look like me stepping into it while embracing the reality of the gospel's sufficiency. He says, I don't step in anything now without deep conviction and confidence about the gospel's sufficiency. Go back to verse 2. He says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when he says that, he's not just referring to the historical event of Jesus being crucified and, and because you're thinking, well, isn't the resurrection important? Isn't the ascension important? Yes, all of that. The early church had what, what we refer to as the kerygma, the, it's the, the preaching. It was, uh, formula is one way to put it, but it was, I wasn't reduced to that. But there were just major tenets that would, they would emphasize. And so when he's saying Christ crucified, he's referring to the epicenter of the kerygma, what they were proclaiming, the gospel. He's not just, listen, he's not just referring to the historical event of the crucifixion, but the implications 
of the, the, the crucifixion. The acceptance, the forgiveness, the life, the restoration of the cosmos. And he says, let me tell you how I approached and stepped in to his enoughness as I responded to his calling to engage with you is that I stepped in realizing the sufficiency of the gospel. The gospel is truly good news. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And that salvation is not just, hey, getting Christian by my name and getting a ticket to heaven. But salvation being brought back into the kingdom and the restoration that God is up to. And he says, what he's given him so often... We don't have confidence in, in responding to these kingdom callings because we've lost our confidence in the gospel. We're in a culture that is attacking the gospel. We become timid, shrinking back and instead of leaning in. And the older I get, and let me tell you, we're getting there. And the more that I grow, which is some two steps forward, one step back, but as I'm moving along, I'm becoming more and more confident that the gospel is the only hope for the world. It's the only way for me to do my job in a fulfilling way to the glory of God or live in relationship or laugh or cry with a sense of context. It's the gospel. And the more I grow, the, 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 the more significant the gospel becomes, the more sufficient it becomes. He's saying, hey, I resolved to say, preach nothing else here but Christ and him crucified. The older we get and the more we grow, the more significant the gospel becomes. In Prince Caspian, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles and Arnie and the book Prince Caspian, Aslan, the Christ figure, who's the lion, comes across Lucy, one of the British kids who've been transported in the magical land. And she's, already, she's, seen, uh, she's seen Aslan before long ago and now she sees him again and in this conversation they have she says Aslan you're bigger he said no I'm not you are she said you're not bigger since the last time I saw you he says no my child you're bigger the more that you grow the bigger you realize that I am and the more we grow the bigger the gospel Becomes. So what's it mean to do kingdom math and whatever calling I've got before me and step out into Christ's enoughness? First of all, it means to embrace the, the sufficiency of the gospel. Secondly, it means to embrace this reality, the reality of my inadequacy. You think it the opposite. You think, man, we got we to gotta work ourselves up. No, 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 no. Uh, it's saying, you know what? We're not sufficient to do the supernatural kingdom stuff. We can't do it without Jesus. Go back to the text, verse 3. He says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. He says, I came to you embracing this reality, the reality of my own inadequacy. And we think that turns us into timid people that are barely holding it together. I love the story of the, the guy 
His wife called him on, before he left home for work and said, on your way home, I need you to stop and get A, B, C, and D from the grocery store. And, you know, a lot of us guys are not very good in grocery stores. I'm not. You know, I'd, you, I mean, first of all, we don't ask for directions. And so when you go into the grocery store, you just have to find it in whatever aisle that it is. And we have the list, and it's in order. We don't change the order. We do it in order. So that means I might pass through the bread aisle, but it's not the top of my list. It's not the next item. I go over here, and once I get that, where's the bread? Oh, yeah, it's back at this one. So we're always zigzagging. It takes us four hours to get four items. And this guy walked in. He was about to do that. And on his way in, he saw a dad and his three-year-old who was not happy to be there. It's just kind of in a guy's DNA sometime, not to be happy in a grocery store. And the little kid was learning early. And so, but the dad was as calm as he could be. And this guy passed by and he heard the dad say, hey, Billy, this won't take long. We just need to get some, some groceries. Well, the kid is not happy, and he starts hearing him get a little louder and louder. He comes across him in the produce aisle, this dad and son, and he hears the dad say, Billy, now calm down. We've just got a few more things to get here. And he's screaming, and that volume increases, comes across him in the dairy aisle, and this kid is red-faced and foaming at the mouth and yelling, and the dad is as calm as he could be, says, Billy... Now settle down. We've just got a couple more items. He hears his kid all over the grocery store. They get to the checkout line. He's right behind him. And the kid now is kicking and screaming and yelling. Dad is as calm as a cucumber. I mean, he's just, he turns and says, Billy, I'm paying the bill. And now we're going to be done. Pays the bill. Kid's screaming out in the parking lot. This guy pays quickly to go out in the parking lot just in time to hear the dad. He's putting his son in the car. He says, Billy, see, we're all done. It's time to go home. And this guy couldn't stand it. He just went over to the the dad and he said, listen, I've been kind of coming across you in the grocery store and I am admiring you big time. I mean, the patience that you had with your son, Billy, just blew me away. And the, the, the guy looked at him and said, you don't understand. I'm Billy. <laughs> and we think that's what it looks like embracing our inadequacy, you know, saying, oh, I just got to get through one more. No, no, no. Embracing my inadequacy in gospel speak, in gospel context, is you, you embrace your inadequacy while embracing the adequacy of Jesus. So instead of that making us more timid and all this negative talk, and I was doing some of that even early this morning. I had a little Billy language going on, and I, I, I needed to, yes, own up to my inadequacy, but gospel-wise, that means owning up to his adequacy at the same time. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You know what humility is? It's not milk toast stuff. It's not negativity. Humility is honesty. It's honest about who I am in terms of my adequacy to do kingdom stuff, but it's also 
honest about his adequacy to do it. My inadequacy, his adequacy is a great combination. The more adequate I pretend to be, the less faith I have, the less I will trust him. So I'm saying, Jesus, I can't do this. You better intervene here. You're going to have to do it. He says, it's the spirit who gives life, which brings up the third reality I've got to embrace. If I'm going to learn this kingdom math and step into Christ's enoughness, I'm going to step in with the realization embracing this, realizing the gospel sufficiency. Secondly, realizing my own inadequacy. But third, realizing, embracing the reality of the Holy Spirit's productivity. Kingdom fruit can only be born by the king. Spiritual fruit. God honoring fruit. That which originates with God uh, is the only thing that can glorify God. And so he does that through us. He produces the fruit himself through us as we follow him in trust and obedience. Look at verse 4. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He says, okay, what you saw happening was a demonstration. The word demonstration there in Greek, it's a legal term. It means it was used in courts, referring to irrefutable evidence of something. He says, what you saw happening was irrefutable evidence of what the Holy Spirit is capable of. It was not me. Have you you guys ever heard the the phrasing and it's kind of like the folklore uh, about the turtle on the fence post? You know, when you, if you're like walking along a country road and you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know immediately? That it did not get there on its own. You're in the middle of nowhere and thinking, no other human being has been here for years probably. And then you come across a turtle on a fence post. You know somebody's been there because turtles don't climb fence posts. He's sitting up there on his shell and he's just doing this business. There's a turtle on the fence post aspect to what we're doing. What should ultimately be happening through us is stuff that's only explainable in terms of God. It's not, see, when we don't do kingdom math, we like it to be according to our own resources so we can take the credit and people say, oh, didn't he do a good job? Isn't she competent? But when we start stepping out into his enoughness, we start doing things that are only explainable in terms of him. So let me ask you a couple of questions. <laughs> what is happening in your life that's only explainable in terms of God? What's happening in mine? Here's a second question. What am I attempting Or what could I attempt that will be bound to fail unless the Holy Spirit intervenes? That's a scary thing to consider until I've learned kingdom math. This is how we do our lives. We're carrying this with us. It's either this or it's this. But either way, this, this flip chart goes with me. And if I start attempting things that are bound to fail, not referring to being frivolous, not referring to being uh, ridiculous, but walking intimately with him and saying, God, 
I want to do what you're calling me to do. And I realize what you're calling me to do, ultimately, you're going to have to give me the strength to do it. Paul wrote to the Ephesians as you're considering those questions. What's happening in my life that's only explainable in terms of him? What, what could I attempt that would be bound to fail unless the Holy Spirit intervenes? As you're thinking about that, I'll use Paul's prayer to, for the Ephesians. This is uh, Paul's prayer for the Northlanders as well. I pray, as you're considering that, that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now get this. Now to him who is what? Able. Who's enough to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. May God give us the courage to say natural math's appropriate in natural environments and arenas, but kingdom math is what's appropriate in the kingdom. Let's believe him. And there are some days... I'm going to have this going on and you're going to come alongside me and say, Matt, hey, let's trust him together. What's it mean to step out in his enoughness? To do this kingdom math, it means embracing the reality of the gospel's ultimate and bedrock solid sufficiency. It means owning up to my own inadequacy in light of his adequacy, which is humility and honesty. It, it, it means Owning up to the fact that the Holy Spirit has got to be the one bearing the fruit. The productivity of the Holy Spirit is what matters here. But fourthly, owning up to the reality of God's reliability. I can trust him. What is it he's calling me to do? God, I just don't think I've got the resource to do it. Maybe maybe it's a... something that's going to require more time than you think you've got. Or maybe it's a temptation. I don't have the strength to withstand that. Maybe it's dealing with somebody that's very difficult in my life. Whatever it is, I can't do it. He says, own up to the gospel sufficiency, your own inadequacy. Own up to the Holy Spirit's productivity. He's got to do it. And ultimately, own up to God's reliability. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord when it's convenient and you've got enough resources. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That does not mean we don't think. It just means we don't put the pressure on our ability to figure things out. That's not where the ultimate pressure goes. In all your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. Trust him. Remember me mentioning Peter not being a water person? Didn't have swimming lessons. Jews didn't. Go back a few generations to the children of Israel. In the wilderness for 40 years. In the desert for 40 years. Michael Phelps was giving no swimming lessons. They had very little water. So as you're looking, when they're coming out of that, into the promised land. Here's the promised land right here. I know you like this map. Mediterranean Sea, promised land. Here's Sea of Galilee, 
the River Jordan, Dead Sea, wilderness down here, the children of Israel come around the Dead Sea and they're entering the Promised Land from the east. They're going to cross the Jordan just above the Dead Sea. It's in that area, in that realm of the Jordan, it's, it, the Jordan River is very steep. We're told in Joshua chapter 3 that it was flood season, flood stage. The River Jordan is one of the fastest flowing rivers of its size in the world. And at flood season, it's torrential. The people were told, I want you to follow. The priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And God instructed Joshua very clearly, this is how you're going to do this. The priests must go before the people carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And they must step into the Jordan. Desert wilderness behind, promised land in front, exciting. However, there's a little obstacle here. You're going to need to trust me. I will divide. I will stop the flow of the Jordan River. But you've got to step in first. A lot of people think this is waiting in, so they had to go in where it's like ankle deep. No. At that point, flood stage, steep banks. When they were committed, they were committed. They, would have, they had no idea how to swim. And they trusted him. They trusted the enoughness of God. They were carrying with them reminder, the Ark of the Covenant, reminder that God is greater than any obstacle before us. The enemies of the people of God were in the promised land. They looked at the Jordan as what their gods were using to protect them. And God was about to show that he ultimately was in charge. But these priests had to touch, trust him. And so there they go. Can you imagine? You got the ark. And it's this steep and base. Probably it's not like this. It's like this. Trust me. So here's my question. And they did. They trusted and they got their feet wet. But not the rest of their body. God stopped the Jordan. The peoples that were occupying the land saw how great God was. So here, in the name of Jesus, I have an assignment for you. I want you to listen very carefully. What is it going to look like this week? For you to get your feet wet. To say, I trust him. I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to step out trusting his enoughness. I'm going to do kingdom math, natural math. No. And to equip you, as you're processing that, the priests had the Ark of the Covenant which was the symbol of God's presence. I'm going to ask you to step in the water and get your feet wet with a reminder of the finished work of Christ on your palates. So let's pray before we have this meal together. Lord Jesus, thank you for enabling us to do what you call us to do. God, I confess in their presence how... Often I hesitate at the water's edge and become paralyzed and forget that you're wanting to send me out partially trained. This is part of the plan, so I'll depend on you. Would you nourish us right now with a reminder that you are Savior and you are Lord. You are King and you are Enabler.
nourish us, strengthen us for the journey. In the name of the one who died and is risen. In the name of the one who walks on the water. Amen.